Okay, my guest today was named one of the top 50 most influential women in the UK tech 2017. She was the chair of Tech UK, formerly known as Women in Tech. She's leading and transforming businesses for over 20 years, recently became the CEO of Aptum Technologies, a hybrid infrastructure company, and has moved from the London UK to Toronto. Her name is Susan Bowen. Susan, pleasure to have you here on the show. Thank you very much for having me. So you recently moved. Uh, how is it like being in Toronto compared to the UK in London? Well, we love it, um, mostly because we've had the best summer, uh, a longer summer than you'd normally expect. So um, being a Brit, we quite like talking about the weather. So um, that's good. <laughs> uh, but I have to say, I think Toronto is so open for business and so open culturally that it's it's just wonderful to be here. That's great. Now, I want to talk about being a CEO, the challenges of being a CEO. Uh, obviously, you know, the, Spot the Spotify CEO, he recently talked about his stint uh, managing the company and he said, I intentionally slowed down the growth because I, we either were doing super well and I felt completely undefeated or I was waking up in horror that we will go out of business the next day. How was it like for you? You recently became the CEO. Uh, what was it like? So I've been CEO of Aptum Technologies now since the 1st of May. Uh, so I've had quite a short time in a true CEO role. Prior to that, I've been a president in business units. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say that the biggest difference between being a CEO of an, a sort of standalone company and being part of a bigger company is that um, instead of relying on different people to do different things you know it's all on you um, to make sure that you're driving people being effective to do all of those different things that somebody else used to worry about so I think that's the biggest difference I'm thoroughly enjoying it and um, the reason why I'm enjoying it is because I feel now that I'm in a position where I'm highly empowered to make those decisions and to enable the whole of the company to kind of rally around a common goal. Uh, whereas historically, it felt that we had such a matrix world in whether, you know, in any of the jobs that I've taken, yeah. uh, that you're constantly compromising. So as a CEO, although you compromise different times in different ways, you're not compromising on the integrity of the company, which is, is, is a great place to be. You are leading the initiative and the you'll make sure that your team makes it happen versus, oh, you have to adapt to my boss. Yeah, exactly. And you stepped into the role at the time where Aptum was on a decline in the revenue, from the revenue perspective, and it is a challenge, but you, you went for it. Uh, what was your thinking pro process behind that? How did you approach that? So I think the reason I was really humbled and also excited to take on this opportunity is because I feel that with our new ownership and the access to capital and the access to amazing thought leaders in the industries, in Digital Colonies Partnership Group, in our sister companies, I, I felt for me that this was the way that we could enable growth in the company. And so although, yes, we're taking on a business unit that is in a very commoditized market, incredibly challenged by um, the way that 
you know, the hosting market is changing. We also have a fabulous opportunity to differentiate ourselves and get in front. Um, I quite like being in front. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, I think for me, that was a really exciting opportunity. And I could see my way to it because I'd been in the business for three and a half years. Uh, so, you know, this is a really exciting opportunity, both for me personally, but also for the entire team. And you talked about challenging stereotypes before. I think you wrote something, you wrote something on LinkedIn about that. Oh, was it you did you always have this attitude like I'm gonna I, I'm up for a challenge or it developed later on uh, as your career progressed so it's really interesting I think I look back and I realized that I was always intended to be in this kind of role and so as I was going through my career 20 years ago I was always perhaps seen as the person that was outspoken or the one that was inappropriately challenging, or perhaps I was, um, you know, pushing the bar higher and raising the bar constantly in everything I did. And I've looked back on those 20 years and realized that it wasn't because I was doing anything wrong um, or because, you know, there was a right or a wrong. It's just a natural aptitude to be curious. Mm. And I think what gives me strength as a CEO is I'm ridiculously curious about everything that happens in the company, mm. everything that happens in the market. Uh, and it's that curiosity that really drives me, to be honest. And, and that's what I think historically when you're in a, a business where people want you to play in a certain box, they don't yeah. particularly want you to be curious. Mm. Um, but when you're CEO, it's amazing because you can be curious about absolutely everything. And, and that's what enables the company to you know, be empowered and to drive growth and to understand more. But it also does. It also comes with being, in a way, an outlier, because a lot of employees, when you look at the companies, they will stand. They will not stand out. They mm. will fit in. But when you actually do stand out, it comes with more challenges, more people, more politics, and more exposure. And 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 some people don't like that. Uh, what was what was it like for you? How did how did you approach uh, the challenges that inevitably showed up? So I think. Again, hindsight's a really great thing. I think as you go through your career, you have certain learned behaviors. So I am somebody that naturally would need to know every aspect about every detail in order to make a decision. But I have a learned behavior now that means that if you want to be effective and you want a company to move fast, then you need to make decisions without necessarily having all the information. So this would be a good example of how, you know, as, a, as an individual, you, you grow and you develop over time. Um, and I would say that, you know, I have access to some amazing I call them mentors now. They mm -hmm. may have been uh, people I worked for before. They may have been those people in the room that were criticizing before because I was quite outspoken. Uh, but what I learned is I don't sweat the small stuff because actually that inhibits me to be as open and to enable empowerment as much as I should. Uh, so I think as you go on this journey, you start to realize those strengths mm -hmm. and then you play to the strengths and you maximize those. And then the other natural tendencies, you just learn to live with them, but you learn to treat them in a slightly different way. And you're also a proponent. I mean, there are certain people like Gary Vaynerchuk, you probably have heard of him, like he always is relentlessly focusing on his strength and just like, he's like, forget your weaknesses or work around them. I know some people are, they have a different opinion, like, oh, you actually should bring up your weaknesses to a decent level and then maybe focus on your strength. Um, what is your opinion around that? 
Honestly, I think you're only really good at being yourself. <laughs> so at times of stress, you know that you'll default to your natural character. And so what's important is that you're able to know what environments cause you stress. So instead of learning to change your default character, because actually those are the things that stem back to childhood, how we were born, what environment we were in, you know, and I'm not a psychologist, but I, but I pretty much know from having a five-year-old that he's a five-year-old who knows what he wants. Right. Um, so I think that what you learn is less about how to manage your weaknesses, but how to put yourself in situations where your natural weaknesses are not coming to the fore. And I think that's the difference is learning how to do that. Um, and if you're constantly putting yourself into a position where the natural environment leads to those strengths becoming over those weaknesses, then I think you get the best out of the person uh, that you can be as opposed to um, worrying about the things that you're not. You get more self-aware inevitably, right? I think, unfortunately, such is life that um, everyone helps you to be more self-aware these days. So um, it doesn't matter. You know, the world is very transparent. And I think, you know, that the more you do and the bigger roles that you get, uh, people are not shying, letting you know the things they don't like. So um, you learn to listen, to take the feedback constructively and to think about um, there's a really great phrase that a lady I used to work for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meg Whitman, um, who, you know, I think is, you know, somebody that I would only aspire to have a tiny bit of Meg in me. Mm -hmm. um, but she used to say, you do your best until you learn to do better. And I, I always kind of hold that phrase to heart because I think, you know, every situation is a learning situation and you'll constantly find different ways of doing things. Absolutely. You mentioned mentors. Who are the people that you look up to right now, mentors or role models, and how did that progress over the years as you were um, becoming more self-aware and learning more about the business? So the thing that I've always um, focused on is that your role models and mentors are not always obvious ones. Um, I've had the benefit of working with some amazing entrepreneurs, uh, people, uh, for example, one of the co-founders and chefs of HelloFresh, mm -hmm. um, through, you know, I, which is, a, I think, a most remarkable company. It's in Canada now, but it, it started in Europe. Um, and, and he's doing very nicely with, mm -hmm. you know, in, in California, his name is Patrick Drake. But but he gives me an insight to, you know, what it's like to be driven, what it's like to constantly aspire to dream and think big versus somebody like Meg Whitman, who I've mentioned, who I got mm. the absolute pleasure of working very closely with, who, you know, has Harvard in her DNA and knows all the methodologies of how to do a very solid, good business strategy, drive board relationships. So I think for me, I, I like to embrace every aspect of different culture and different environment. And um, I'm always befriending people that, you know, I think can um, help me to grow and as a result of that I can you know provide an environment for other people to grow and you talked about working on your network it's consciously building your network uh, making sure it's up to date and it's such a big part mm. of actually being successful how did you like I guess you did you like for how long did you do that and what are some of the aspects you're looking to bring to your network and then to keep to keep it growing I don't think the that time spent 
getting to know different people and getting different perspectives is ever lost. And for me, it's an ever important aspect. You know, I'll constantly seek opportunity to learn and listen from people around me. And the, the reason why I do that is because there's no better way to test your thinking than with people who are not that close to you. So I yeah. think it's always good to get that third party perspective, yeah. um, lots of different perspective. Uh, then you can test your ideas and then you can learn how to um, maybe uh, drive those ideas into the organization. I want to go back to talk about Aptum. Uh, because I'm sure some listeners don't really know what the what what That's is right. the infrastructure, but I want to talk about the about it in the context of Shazam because a few years ago you helped Shazam to build this incredible infrastructure that allowed them to scale as much as they did. Yeah. So maybe you could talk about that about what Aptum does in the context of Shazam, so it will be easier for listeners to understand. So, so interestingly, um, Aptum Technologies does very little now for Shazam in their current world, mm -hmm. uh, very simply because they've reached a scale uh, and obviously have been acquired, so they're part of Apple. Um, what we did in the heritage of what we did as a company is we were open to enabling Shazam as an entrepreneurial uh, concept of enabling you know at the fastest level of response and if you look at the US game shows now there's the beat the Shazam uh, contest yeah, right. now when we first started working with Shazam we actually had Nokia phones and pin technology and you'd type in a pin and people were super excited if within 10 seconds there was a response over time, we were trying to get that obviously down mm. uh, to one or two seconds. And so what we were doing was enabling the technology behind that. And that technology consisted of um, you know, basic infrastructure of servers in data centers, satellite technology on the rooftops, enabling their application. So what Shazam had was the application mm -hmm. and what our company, Apton Technologies, had was the infrastructure that enabled the communication of that application. Which is critical for the experience. Well it, well, it wouldn't have existed without us. So we absolutely were thrilled to go on that journey with Shazam. As technology has been further enabled, it's now in a public cloud environment. Um, it's still got a private cloud aspect to it. Mm -hmm. So I think Shazam's a great example, as are many other companies, where you know enabling the use of infrastructure, and I like to use the phrase data as infrastructure. Really what Shazam is, is data. Uh, of as infrastructure being enabled, accessible, um, and it's very you know exciting. People might not strike an importance on the ability to recognize a piece of music, right. um, and so you know I leave that for the same people who like to use Farmville, <laughs> you know, as a historic <laughs> yeah. growing application right. or Pokemon Go. But the reality is that it allowed us to test high performance compute. It was one of the fast high performance utility compute solutions out there, um, and it allowed us to test hundred gig networks. Mm. Uh, so f as a geek, as a technology geek, yeah. for me, what Shazam has done and what it'll continue to do is super exciting. To 
the market. It's very cool, especially when it's enabled by default in apps and applications like Google, where it listens all the time and it doesn't actually affect the battery and just enhances the consumer experience so much more. Well, when you talk about consumer experience, you know, one of the things I absolutely love is that they, you know, the Shazam technology is now used in adverts for you to recognize brands. You hear the music, it links back to brands. You're suddenly, um, you know, choosing to buy a car because the music became so familiar and Shazam enabled you to connect the music with the purchase of a car that you feel excited about. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that that classifies as artificial intelligence, but it certainly, you know, challenges the psychology of artificial intelligence for sure. 100%. What are some of the advices that you hear? I'm sure you, everybody gives advice and you hear a lot of advice as a CEO. What is the advice that you hear that is nonsense, that is not true? as being a CEO or, or as being as an ex executive? I'm not sure this one's going to win me any favors, but, um, and I understand why it became such a big thing, but I'm not a fan of the concept of leaning in as a female. Um, I don't think that as an executive or an individual, leaning in is really something that I have personally been able to relate to. Um, I come from a you know, kind of background of 25 years. I do think that inclusion and diversity matters, uh, but I also think that it's really based on results mm -hmm. and it's based on you know, really enabling and being focused on the outcomes. Um, you know, the way I liken this is if you take Formula One racing Love and um, you know, Claire Williams is, the, one of the most amazing leadership uh, people that you will find in the Williams family. You know, she um, talks quite openly about the fact that Formula One racing is not an exclusive list. And as soon as a female is in the ability to compete at the same level, then there will definitely be room for female in that sport. So I think, you know, for me, I think if we think about that, then you know, it's not about necessarily being able to lean in. It's about, are you able to produce the same outcomes and able to think in the same way? What I do um, mm -hmm. say though, and I wanna be extremely clear on this, it is super important, though, that we think about the fact that over 50% of the population is female. And so from a yeah. technology perspective, it really goes without saying now that the people are making choices in boards or making choices on product. If the users are over 50% female, they need to think like a female <laughs> um, right. to have that inclusivity. And so I've, I'm less about the phrase women in tech or women in telco, I'm more about the phrase diversity and skill for inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think the sooner we can get to that place, um, the stronger we will be and the more inclusive we will be and actually the better challenged we will be. It's a broader approach, right? Much broader, yeah. Now, I wanted to get a little bit personal and talk to you about your routines. And yeah. as CEO, I'm sure you have so little time. There's a ton of people who always want to get on your calendar. How do you... What do you do in the morning to get your day started? Uh, and in the evening, do you have any certain things that you do? And how do you, how do you approach that? So all good questions. Uh, my, my world very much is about family first. I think that if you have the right focus on your family, it creates a certain health and mentality that allows you to deal with whatever is thrown at you. Um, 
I have a five-year-old, nearly six-year-old, mm -hmm. and a big part of my mornings and evenings is taken up with making sure that, you know, mommy is visible and mm -hmm. that as a mom, I'm, you know, taking him to school on an equal share as, as his dad is taking him to school and that we're both sharing, we're a team. Right. So, you know, I... I do the food shopping like everyone else. Um, I cook certain meals in the week like everyone else. I make sure that my son has the right shoes for school. I'm not a big fan of, um, you know, passing that to somebody else because right. I think that, you know, it's what keeps you grounded. Mm -hmm. and, and let's face it, if you have an organization, um, the majority of your organization is going through the same thing. They're spinning the plates on how to get the school run done, how to get to the next volunteer event, the Terry Fox Day that's coming yeah. up. You know, I'm going to be there and I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to make sure that I'm taking part in that. And that's a big part of who I am and the integrity of how I lead. And so that allows, I guess, my organization to relate to me as a person and not just as a CEO. And you draw the line in a way that like there's is it more of like oh this is like 6 p.m or 7 p.m this is my family time and i'm not i'm not going to be available 24 7 as much as i would love to you know i'm not sure it's as easy as to say at six o'clock on x number of day in the week i think you have to remain flexible our customers are really the priority around business but if you have the right level of team then you're sharing that commitment mm -hmm. uh, it's not all on one person's shoulders right um, I think what's important for me is that I have the right balance. I would say if 60% of my booked time in a given week is not enabling the things that are important for the strategy or the objectives that I have, then I, it feels as though the balance is wrong. You know, that other 40, mm. if, as long as that 40%, you're being available, um, you're listening to the people that need you. Um, but 60% of my working week is very much about enabling line of sight to the things that I'm trying to achieve for the company. Do you do any things like meditation or <laughs> running or anything that keeps you more grounded? I'm constantly trying new things. Um, I I definitely enjoy sports, swimming, cycling. Um, I've always tried to think of myself uh, as trying running. I'm not. I've I've managed to do 10k's. I always have one event each year that I try to do. So for the last couple of years, I've been doing a charity event for a 10k run mm. to raise funds. The year before that, I did a 100k uh, cycle ride, um, which was a real, <laughs> real challenge. And at, at 72 kilometers, I was probably wondering what the, you know, what I'd done and why I was doing this. And it was about the charity. Um, I think, you know, one of my personal goals is to get through uh, a run without thinking about running. It would be really nice if I could think <laughs> about something else and not running. Not thinking but, about the, like, how many kilometers left. <laughs> exactly. Um, I always um, feel very jealous of those people that run past with, and they're clearly not thinking about running. <laughs> so, um, but but on a, on a serious note, I think health and well-being is really important. I try to eat well. It's very difficult sometimes, especially if you're flying or you're in business meetings. So I try to you know, think about drinking juices, making sure there's plenty of water. Um, you know, I, I'm not someone who does meditate necessarily, mm -hmm. uh, but I like to, um, you know, our, our dog is a big part of the family. Right. We go for dog walks, we, we play, we swim, we mm -hmm. run, we cycle. Um, you know, everyday life things really. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you have made in, in the recent time? 
personal investments? It, it could be personal. Yeah, it could be personal. It could be investment in time or maybe a book or maybe time spent with your family. So one of the things I, I really try to do every year is to have one of those holidays where you really do try to switch off. So you set up the whole day so that, that you know, there are people there to be that front line. I think it's really important that you separate yourself from that. And in that whole day, there's always, always room for a bit of uh, Susan time where I actually sit and read a book undisturbed or I think those things are really important because in everyday life today, you're driving, thinking, listening, reading, you know, multimedia, multitasking, there's huge pressure. And I think there's nothing better than taking that moment where you lose yourself in a book, where you're thinking only about that, what you're reading, and you lose yourself in that story or in the narrative of, you know, somebody else's life experience. So yeah, for me, yeah, that's really important. And, and I make sure that we, we try to do that at least once a year. There's one week a year where as right. a family, we, you know, we take time out. You mentioned books. Uh, is there a book or a few books that you were gifted to people many times? Um, my books are not always the most obvious of books that people want to, to read. Uh, but, but the one I've actually given out, there's two books I've, I've given out many times. Um, one is quite a recent book um, from Buzz Aldrin. Okay. And there's a book about 10 life lessons from the man who landed on the moon. Oh, I love that. I think it's amazing book. I love the fact that you know, for no other reason than because he absolutely needed to. He wanted to, at the age of just before 80, to make sure he's the only person who'd been to Alaska, um, Arctic and Antarctica, and, you know, nearly put himself in hospital as a direct <laughs> result. Um, so it shows a sort of certain mindset. Um, but the other book that I really like, actually, mm -hmm. is Jensen Button, his autobiography. He's a oh, Formula Jensen. One. Yeah. And one of the things that I took away from that, which is really quite remarkable is the thing that got him to be in his words the best formula one driver is he understood tires and mm. it kind of occurred to me that mm. actually if you're the ceo and you might like the look of the car the performance of the car you're only focusing on the numbers yeah. but you don't understand the tires or you don't understand the mechanics of how something works then maybe you're not getting the best out of it and and i really take a lot from that actually so they're the two books they're quite random oh, <laughs> um, but they're cool. hopefully quite interesting to the person i am would you say tires as analogy would be the team or, or in, so the in tires the analogy i think in my business of and technologies is really understanding um, the cogs of the company and how the company actually runs. So if you're running an infrastructure or data center company that doesn't know what the megawatt of power is coming in and out of the data center, I would say you can't make the right choices. So there's a level of detail that you need to understand. And I think to me, the Jensen button of this world understands the performance of tires, which are massively impactful to the performance of the car. In the same way that, you know, when Alex Ferguson was mm -hmm. leading Manchester United, right. he understands he understood as much as again I read his book the performance of the team was more important. So when he, you know, chose to let somebody like David Beckham leave 
Manchester United, it was perhaps because David Beckham's persona and role became bigger than the than team. team. And and that was a massive, you know, well written by yeah. both parties. And it's really exciting to read both of those aspects. But I think as a CEO, you have to think about all of these dynamics. Um, and, you know, there's been many David Beckhams in my life in the team where yeah. they suddenly their profile or their external personas become bigger than, you know, perhaps the company's looking for. And when it becomes about them and not the company, then you mm. have to question the value. I'm also a huge fan of Formula One. Love Jensen. I followed him <laughs> a lot. He was one of my favorite drivers. Yes. And I totally agree. And, if, and it was also interesting for people who actually follow Formula One, the teammate that he have after coming from Braun to going to, uh, to McLaren and, and, and facing Lewis Hamilton, Hamilton, which is who's the fastest driver in the world by far. Still is. It still is. And, <laughs> yeah. and being competitive and winning races against him, that is, that is absolutely extraordinary, knowing that you are actually slower. And I, and I think, again, that was because, you know, he took the time to work out all the different factors, the factors of the car, the factors of the team. I also really liked how, you know, again, I found quite inspirational the fact he got into um, a different level of fitness and triathlons and, and so forth. I think it just changed the dynamic. He was always looking for something different. Um, and I, I, I think that's a good example as well. If you're always trying to learn something new and excel, then as a leader, you're always going to be constantly evolving. Mm. And that can only be good for business, I think. Also, um, I had a question. So imagine yourself being 20 years old, you're still working early in your <laughs> probably technical role and a support yeah. role. Knowing what you know now, what, what advice would you give to yourself? Uh, and I feel like a lot of young people would, uh, would love to know starting their career, being interested in tech, wanting to do well, yeah. what would be something you would say what to yourself? a great question. So when I was very early doors in my career, in my early 20s, I had the most remarkable experience. I was coding for Amex Bank in anticipation of the millennial bug. And it's not really about the fact that I'd identified some coding that needed to be fixed inside of an OPEX derivative system in a banking. It, what I got to do, which at the time I took in my stride, but what I got to do was I got to travel and work in Singapore, well, you know, Singapore, in the World Trade Centers of New York mm -hmm. in London. Um, and I suppose I was really focused on what I was delivering. And so when I look back now, yes, I had a great time. And yes, I worked nights. And mm -hmm. yes, I got to see Singapore and Boat Key of Singapore and travel and go and see Raffles Hotel and New York. And, you know, to have had that experience to live in the Marriott at the bottom of World Trade Two um, was an amazing experience. And I would say the one thing I didn't do, which I do now, mm -hmm. is I look up, I look around me. So when I'm traveling in my CEO job, which I get to do, you know, I was in. Of course. I'm in Dallas, um, in San Antonio, in, you know, in and around Europe. I always now take that moment to look up and around me or to catch the train or to get on a bus because in that moment in my 20s, there mm. are things that I was living and experiencing then that are no longer here because of very difficult situations. I'm not sure I ever took enough time yeah. to realize where I was. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I could give myself that advice, it would be to look up and around and think about the moment and enjoy it. Yeah, oh, that's, a, that's a great one. Yeah. 
and I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily, they're not really present. They're sort of there, but they're not really appreciating where they are. Like appreciation okay. for, for being, I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about, oh, you have to appreciate being a human because the odds of you being a bird are, are pretty high. <laughs> well, it's really interesting because you said the word um, now that you're successful earlier. And the funny thing is, I don't ever consider myself mm -hmm. successful. I consider myself doing a job. I consider myself being a good mom, um, you know, trying to be a good wife, a good daughter. Um, I don't think I've reached success yet. Maybe there's more, I don't know. I'm always striving for more, but I'm enjoying the moment. I'm looking in, and looking up and around. Um, and I think that is what keeps you grounded. And that hopefully is what you know good leaders do because that's what everyone else should be doing too. And it's a great point because everybody has a different definition of success. Mm. And for some people, success will be a certain amount of money on, in the bank, which is a terrible idea, but that's their <laughs> choice. Or being a CEO or running their own business. What is it, what's the definition of success for you and where you are striving for? Oh, you know, every everything about me is, you know, that as a family, we are supportive and encouraging and enabling each other to, um, be who we want to be. I think that's the best thing is that you are who you want to be. And the, the second for me, um, I think success for me will be that my son, my husband, my mum, my, my sister, we'll all, we'll all make sure that we're present in each other's lives. Um, success for the company is that obviously we achieve our results but in doing so we're actually doing it as a you know as a total company and that we're all aligned so yeah. i'm super excited about that you've been with um you've been obviously going through the corporate ladder for a super long time you've been with hp for a long time yeah. now over 16 years was there a th a thought that, oh, I'd like to be the CEO, or you were always approaching it, I'm gonna do the best job I, I can at the moment, and then we'll see what happens. It's a really good question. So I never intended to spend 16 and a half years at HP. And I think there was always opportunity along the way to do different things. So when I look back at the roles that I performed, it was always about the contribution or the the, the challenging aspects. I do get bored very easily. Mm -hmm. um, so even, you know, watching a box set, if the box set hasn't quite got <laughs> to the point quick enough, I've kind of switched off mm -hmm. maybe too soon. So I do get bored very quickly and I need to be constantly um, learning and developing and, and taking on new insights. That's why I love to travel as well. I love different mm -hmm. cultures. So if I think about my career at HP, I never really thought of it as 16 and a half years in one company. HP and the people I work with afforded me the most amazing different roles. So mm. I was never really in a role for more than two years. Right. And so I think, you know, very similar to when I joined the Kojiko team, I started in one role and within 18 months I was doing something else. <laughs> and now, you know, then we're taking the company standalone and now I'm the CEO. So, you know, I hope that, you know, instead of being the CEO of a company of our current size, that I'm CEO of a company that's much larger, um, that continually transforms. So I think really it's, for me, it's about, are you constantly having that opportunity to develop? 
but also are you having fun because yeah. at the end of the day you spend an awful lot of time and it might not be traditional nine to five job it, i mean i don't think many jobs really are anymore um, but if you're going to put so much effort into mm. it, it has to be rewarding personally um not just monetary level you know or for the lifestyle that you get you just gotta enjoy it it's not necessarily with an end goal in mind for you it's more of like am i having fun am i growing and i'm learning something new uh, yeah Yeah, I think so. I always did, though, say to myself, what would it be like to be 50 and CEO of a billion dollar business? Um, but, you know, when I look at people today that are 20 years younger than me, you know, whether it's uh, Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, everyone else, you know, Quirky, they, they totally challenge everybody now, don't they? So maybe that slight thought at one point now seems, you know, perhaps less ambitious, but... But it's also like everybody, you know, and I think there's a misconception that people think, oh, Mark can do it. I could do it, too. But the odds are so low. There's so few people that did that. They did that. And then the second point is that most people think, oh, this person is CEO. It was just an overnight success, which is not <laughs> not even close. You have to be prepared to work really hard. And um, I am a natural grafter, as they say. Um, I work hard. I stick with the detail, I'm tenacious in what I do, and you know, no role is beneath me. And I would never, ever ask a member of my team to do something I wasn't prepared to do myself. And so, you know, throughout the years of my career, no job is too small. Um, and I take ownership and accountability. And I think that's, you know, a big part of getting the organization to rally behind you. I love uh, the book. I, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, Jack O'Willing, Extreme Ownership or Dichotomy of Leadership. Yeah, I haven't read the detail of that. Actually, I've only read the synopsis of it. It does look good. I quite like the the fact that, you know, the concept that you have to take ownership for something and show other people that you're taking ownership for it will create a natural empowerment. Um, I like the methodology of it. I'm not sure how much of that in practice works, but you know, certainly I, I'd like to think that I'm naturally taking accountability and responsibility for things. Was it always there for you or was it coming from the family values or the family um, uh, like education? Maybe. I think that there's a combination of both. I definitely come from a background of family values where people work and they work hard and they take pride in what they do and that we set standards of excellence. Um, my father was a policeman and my mother um, a bookkeeper, but they, you know, irrespective of their disciplines, they always had a strong value to doing you know, the job that was expected of them and striving for excellence. Uh, my sister is a teacher. She has the same kind of insight, you know, natural tendency. So I think there is something about core family values, the way that you look at things. But I think also I am just driven, but I'm driven in, in every aspect of my life. So um, if we were to buy a new house, yeah. probably within 10 minutes, I've decorated it you know, worked out where the furniture's <laughs> gonna go. Um, you know, I, I just naturally am solving for things. Um, and, you know, I can't help that. That's just a natural tendency. Is there, um, like, are you looking for perfection? Are you looking for a certain style? Or is it, I wanna get it done fast and it has to be, it has to be great? Oh, a, a bit of both, actually. Um, fast is definitely a big part of my nature, um, but it's fast 
it's what I refer to as fast stable. And I quite often use this term in business, actually, when you're transforming businesses, you need to make choices quickly. You don't always have the information. Uh, you need to do things in a stable way so that the wheels don't fall off, but always with an end goal of excellence in mind. So um, you might make compromises initially, but the end result is still just, you know, of excellence. Yeah. How do you accept the risk? Because a lot of times you have to make a decision fast. You rarely have enough information. If you're going to wait for all the information, nothing will happen. Uh, yeah. What is it like? What is your risk tolerance and approach there? I think I have quite a high aptitude for being prepared for multiple strategies against the known risks. Mm -hmm. um, but anyone with a project management background will know that there's so many unknowns. And I think you can't necessarily plan for the unknowns, otherwise you'd get distracted. It, it's a bit on a sort of nature of, if you went for an eye test right. and they weren't gonna give you the results for two weeks, and you think everything's fine, but the test could come back saying that there's an issue. Do you spend two weeks worrying about something that you have no control over, the result's not going to change, or do you get on with what you're planning to do for those two weeks? And, and I would say, do not get distracted by what you can't change or what you can't control, and to focus on what you can do uh, that's within your gift. Accepting uncertainty is so difficult, though most people always are looking for, I need to make sure it's certain, and that's what keeps keeps them where they are. And there are certain roles in every company where people need to have that as a strength. And so when you look across your team, you're always looking to have you know a good balance of people who do think like that, balanced with the people that are the opposite. And then I think as a CEO, if you have that strength in your team, you're always going to look at the different lenses and the different views. And from that, you can then make a, com you know, a judgment that you know is weighed in the right direction. Susan, what's, uh, what the impact would you like to have on the, on the world with the work that you're doing with your mission? Oh, you know, I'm going to steal something. Um, I, 20 years ago, a, a, a girl came to me in HP and she was a graduate and she's now actually the chief of staff of the UK of HP and she doesn't remember this because I spoke to her recently and I said you know what you came in to see me and I asked a question what do you want to be uh, known for what, what what's your future vision so kind of the question you just mm. asked me and she said to me I want to be a person of influence and I was so wowed that this graduate wanted to be a person of influence. I'm going to completely steal it and say that I want to be a person of influence. And then hopefully, you know, whatever that might be. Um, I don't think I'm Greta who's going to change the way that we think about mm -hmm. the world. Yes, um, probably. I'm definitely not Greta um, and I'm not Mark Zuckerberg. But I do think hopefully I'll have influenced maybe the lady I just mentioned, who was a graduate, who we've enabled to have a wonderful career, or customers like Shazam to grow as quickly as they did um, and to have the impact that they have. So, you know, I, I hope hopefully that's something I can achieve. It's like uh, Will Smith talked about uh, he, about decision making a decision of being somebody. I, w I want to be somebody. That's what I decide to do. I can only be myself. Um, I, I don't think I can be anyone else. <laughs> Susan, where's everybody can find you online? 
everybody uh, online. I'm on Twitter or on LinkedIn, and uh, Susan Bowen Aptum on Twitter. You can find me there. Uh, I'm not a, a massive kind of proactive Twitter opinionated person, but every now and again there'll be something I feel that I have to have a, a point of view on. So um, hopefully that will uh, help share share the world that I'm in. Susan, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure chatting with you. You have a lot of great views that I, I think must be shared. So hopefully you, you will do more of that. Really appreciate the time you've taken today. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you guys liked this episode. And if you did, you can go on Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review. And that would mean a lot to me because I'm always interested in hearing what my listeners enjoy and what they would like me to work on and improve. I have a lot of cool guests coming soon. So that would be, I would really appreciate that. Or you can send me a note directly over email or LinkedIn. I have it all in hyperlinks in the show notes below this episode. And I will see you in the next one. Thank you.